Welcome to NTD Evening News. Our top story tonight, the Texas church shooter is identified. What we know about her history and the child she brought along. Find out what police discovered so far and how it could be connected to anti-Semitism. Growing backlash over President Biden's decision to campaign on TikTok, what the White House is admitting about the app's national security risks, and how a new poll shows big problems for Biden's 2024 election chances. Israel Defense Forces conduct an operation in the Gaza Strip to rescue two hostages. This comes as the Israeli military says it found a terror tunnel underneath a United Nations building. Jason Perry reports. Former President Trump asks the Supreme Court to delay a trial. Meanwhile, in Georgia, DA Fannie Willis tries to get out of a subpoena. Plus, what Trump himself is doing in a Florida court. Arlene Richards reports. An intense winter storm sweeping across the Northeast could bring snow to the Big Apple as soon as tonight. Officials urging residents to be prepared. We're tracking the storm. This is NTD Evening News. Live from our NTD Global Headquarters in New York City, here is Tiffany Meyer. Good evening and thank you for joining us tonight. Police have identified the suspect who opened fire at Pastor Joel Austin's mega church in Houston on Sunday. They are also revealing more of what they discovered during the investigation. Houston police on Monday identified the shooter at Lakewood Church as 36-year-old Genesee Yvonne Marino, an Hispanic female. There are some discrepancies. We do have reports she used multiple aliases, including Jeffrey Escalante. So she has utilized both male and female names. But through all of our investigation to this point, talking with individuals, interviews, documents, Houston Police Department reports, she has been identified this entire time as female, she, her. And so uh, we are identifying her as Genesee Moreno, Hispanic female. Police said Marino had a history of mental illness and a criminal background. She was placed under emergency detention in 2016. Authorities uncovered a rifle she used at the scene. There was a sticker on the buttstock of the rifle that stated Palestine. A sticker simply stated Palestine on the buttstock. Authorities have searched Marino's house in Conroe, Texas, as well as her car, and said they found anti-Semitic writings. I mentioned anti-Semitic writing. We do believe that there was a familial dispute that has taken place between uh, her ex-husband and her ex-husband's family, and some of those individuals are of uh, are Jewish. So we believe that that is might might possibly be where all of this stems from. Marino entered Lakewood Church, which has a capacity of more than 16,000, and began firing shortly before 2 p.m. local time on Sunday. A service was about to start at the time. Two off-duty officers present killed Marino before she could kill anyone inside the church. The shooter brought with her a seven-year-old boy. Police on Monday confirmed that the boy is her biological son. Multiple shots are exchanged by all three. She eventually falls to the ground. The seven-year-old child it falls to the ground as well from gunfire, one uh, gunshot wound to the head. 
Like has been mentioned earlier today, he is in critical condition at this time. A man in his 50s sustained a non-critical leg injury and was being treated at a local hospital. An investigation into the shooting is ongoing. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. President Biden eyeing a hostage deal in Gaza that would pause fighting for at least two months. And a new poll finds an overwhelming majority of Americans think Biden is too old for another term. NTD's White House correspondent Iris Town has more. President Biden says the U.S. is working on a new hostage deal that would pause the fighting in Gaza for at least six weeks. Here's what President Biden is saying when hosting the King of Jordan at the White House on Monday. Watch. The United States is working on a hostage deal between Israel and Hamas, which would bring an immediate and sustained period of calm to Gaza for at least six weeks, which we could then take the time to build something more enduring. The Jordan King, meanwhile, called for a complete ceasefire, which President Biden has been opposing. The meeting also came at a politically sensitive time for President Biden, as a new poll by ABC News and Ipsos shows that 86% of American voters think that Biden is too old for a second term. The poll is conducted after a report by the special counsel released last week that called President Biden an elderly man with a poor memory. The White House on Monday again tried to discredit some of that comment. Watch. Uh, special counsel her is, is, as far as I remember, is a is a uh, obviously a, re a Republican, a a a, uh, a prosecutor. He's not a, he's not a medical doctor. He's just not. The Monday visit also marked the second foreign visit in just a few days where the two leaders chose not to hold a joint press conference. And that's despite calls for President Biden to address the public and members of the press more often. Reporting from the White House, Iris Tao, NTD News. Israeli forces conducted a dangerous operation to rescue hostages in the Gaza Strip. And in another breaking development, the Israeli military reported finding a terror tunnel underneath the headquarters of a United Nations agency in the Gaza Strip. Entities Jason Perry has the latest on the war. Israel Defense Forces located two hostages being held in Rafah in the Gaza Strip. And early Monday morning, the Israeli military conducted a military operation to rescue them. Israeli government spokesperson Elon Levy gave a detailed account of the rescue operation. In the early morning at 1.49 a.m., special forces breached a civilian building in Rafah and found the two hostages who were being helmed by armed terrorists in an apartment on the second floor. One minute after the building was breached, the Air Force and Southern Command activated aerial fire to enable the forces disengagement and strike Hamas terrorists in the area. Yamam officers from the Israel Police Special Forces shielded the two hostages with their bodies until they could be extracted under fire accompanied by IDF forces. And after the hostages were seated in one of the Israeli military vehicles, one of the soldiers asked if they were cold and needed a blanket. A hostage replied by saying, it's warm, it's warm in our hearts. The troops then prepared the hostages for a quick transfer to a military helicopter that was set to land nearby in a matter of seconds. And the helicopter flew the two hostages to a hospital near Tel Aviv. And after more than four months of captivity, they reunited with their loved ones. The two former hostages are 60-year-old Fernando Marmon and 70-year-old Louis Hare. 
Still, over 100 hostages remain in the Gaza Strip. This hostage rescue operation took place in Rafah, where over 1 million people are now taking shelter as the war goes on. On Monday, White House National Security spokesperson John Kirby expressed concerns about civilians possibly being caught in the crossfire. We don't believe that it's advisable to go in in a major way in Rafah without a proper, ex executable, effective, and credible plan um, for the safety of the more than a million Palestinians that are taking refuge in Rafah. However, Israel says that Rafah is one of the last strongholds for Hamas terrorists. And Israeli forces continue to discover alleged links between Hamas and the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, or UNRWA. Over the weekend, Israel Defense Forces reported finding a Hamas terror tunnel beneath UNRWA's main headquarters in the Gaza Strip, connected to an UNRWA school. The IDF reported finding a large quantity of weapons and explosives in the UNRWA building. In a statement to the media, UNRWA said it had vacated the headquarters on October 12th, five days after the war began, and was therefore unable to confirm or otherwise comment on the Israeli finding. Jason Perry, NTD News. Former President Trump is facing backlash from European leaders and American politicians for his comments this weekend on NATO members' failure to fulfill their financial obligations. Our Washington correspondent Luis Martinez has more on this story. You didn't pay? You're delinquent? He said, yes, let's say that happened. No, I would not protect you. In fact, I would encourage them to do whatever the hell they want. You got to pay. You got to pay your bills. Former President Trump's recent comments on NATO drew strong criticism from the European Union. EU foreign policy chief Josep Borrell defended NATO's Article 5, which states that an attack on one member nation will be considered an attack on all and thus compel all members to act in collective defense. NATO cannot be uh, a la carte military alliance, cannot be a military alliance that works depending on the humor of the president of the U.S. on those days. The European Commission stated that the regional bloc is preparing for all possible outcomes of the U.S. presidential election. NATO Secretary General Jen Stoltenberg accused Trump of putting military personnel at risk, while Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley added to the staunch criticism. He just put every military member at risk and every one of our allies at risk just by saying something at a rally like that. European and Canadian defense spending has increased over $90 billion since 2016, when Trump first brought to light the shortfall in NATO spending. But despite the war that's been raging in Europe for over 23 months, and despite the rhetoric against Trump, NATO members such as Germany, France, Spain, the Netherlands, Italy, Turkey, and 13 others did not meet their pledge to invest at least 2% of GDP in defense in 2023. This, according to NATO's own estimates. The U.S., on the other hand, spent over 3.4% of its GDP on defense last year. Former President Trump is asking the Supreme Court to delay his trial in D.C. The case is about his actions after the 2020 election. His claim of presidential immunity has already been denied. But now he's appealing that, and so today just asked for more time to appeal. This is while Trump in court again. NTD's Arlene Richards tells us what he's doing in Florida and what D.A. Fannie Willis is objecting to in Georgia. 
About 100 Trump supporters greeted the former president at the back of a federal courthouse in Fort Pierce, Florida, on Monday. The Trump motorcade arrived for a closed hearing before Judge Eileen Cannon in the classified documents case brought by special counsel Jack Smith. The hearing was scheduled to discuss the procedures for handling classified evidence in the trial currently set for May 20th. The judge met first with defense attorneys in the morning and with government attorneys in the afternoon. According to Cannon's order, defense attorneys were expected to discuss their theories of the case, as well as how certain classified information would help their defense. The government would continue previous discussions about withholding or redacting certain classified documents. During pretrial proceedings, attorneys on both sides have filed competing motions over how much discovery information should be redacted or completely withheld from public view. While Trump was permitted to attend the hearing, co-defendants Walt Nauta and Carlos de Oliveira were not, because they don't have the necessary security clearances to review classified documents. The closed hearing comes as prosecutors have also revealed that a prospective government witness has received threats over social media that are now the subject of a federal investigation. Smith is pushing back on an order that requires him to release a document containing the witness's name. Trump's attorneys are expected to respond to Smith's objections by February 23rd. The judge also asked the parties to reserve Tuesday for further closed-door proceedings as necessary. Also on Monday, Georgia District Attorney Fonnie Willis had her day in court. Willis is asking Judge Scott McAfee to quash subpoenas issued to her, to Prosecutor Nathan Wade, county employees, and a Wade business associate. Co-defendant Michael Roman accused Willis of having a romantic relationship with top prosecutor Nathan Wade. Roman alleges the couple have benefited financially, and he says they should be disqualified from the case. Willis has also asked the judge to cancel an evidentiary hearing scheduled for February 15th. The judge said at the outset of the hearing that there are still some conflicts in evidence that need to be resolved, such as whether or not Willis received any financial benefit from her relationship with Wade. The judge indicated that the February 15th hearing would not be canceled. At the end of the proceeding, Trump's attorney Stephen Sadow asked the judge for a private one-on-one -on -one meeting. Meanwhile, in the D.C. election interference case, Trump asked the Supreme Court to delay the trial while he appeals the lower court's decision to block his immunity claim. Arlene Richards, NTD News. In New York City, officials are preparing for what could be the city's biggest snowfall in more than two years. A quick but intense winter storm is expected to sweep the Big Apple tonight and into tomorrow. Here's Mayor Eric Adams telling residents to brace for the upcoming storm. You know, the time has come. You know, Mother Nature does what she wants to do. We're taking this storm extremely, extremely uh, serious. Uh, we want New Yorkers to be prepared and we want New Yorkers to do the same. Adams said the storm could bring low visibility, high wind gusts, slick roads, and up to two feet of coastal flooding. Meteorologists are expecting the city to be blanketed by five to eight inches of snow. But the forecast is subject to change. Even a slight shift in the storm's track could make a huge difference in the intensity of the snowfall. Outside of New York City, other parts of the Northeast could also be impacted. That includes Pennsylvania and northern New Jersey. Meanwhile, after days of warm weather, a snow advisory is in place across Ohio and surrounding areas. But for other parts of the Midwest, snow appears to be absent this year. Dozens of cities in the region are having one of the warmest winters on record. 
Coming up, President Biden now on TikTok. Even though the app is considered a threat to national security, his first post has over 500,000 likes. Critics crying foul today over two things President Biden did on Super Bowl Sunday. What did the president say about inflation and why didn't he sit down for an interview? Arian Postar brings you the backlash and how the White House responds. Former President Trump drawing ire with his remarks on NATO. Our guest says Trump was referring to NATO members who were not keeping their commitments. Hear his analysis of Trump's comments, that and more after the break here on NTD News. Welcome back. I'm Tiffany Meyer. President Biden is now on TikTok as of yesterday. The account already has 60,000 followers and over half a million likes. His first video garnering nearly 5,000 comments. NTD's Virginia Gibson has more. President Biden has joined TikTok using the handle at BidenHQ. His profile picture is a black and white photo of himself with bright red laser eyes. The profile description is grows the economy. The description on his first post is, LOL, hey guys. Chiefs or Niners? Two great quarterbacks, hard to decide. But if I didn't say I was for the Eagles and I'd be sleeping alone, my wife's a Philly girl. Game or commercials? Game. Game or halftime show? Game. Jason Kelsey or Travis Kelsey? Mama Kelsey. I understand she makes great chocolate chip cookies. Deviously plotting to rig the season so the Chiefs would make the Super Bowl or the Chiefs just being a good football team? You get in trouble if I told Trump or Biden? Are you kidding? <laughs> Biden. Biden's TikTok is noteworthy because many see the app as a national security threat. It's owned by a Chinese company, ByteDance. And ByteDance is beholden to the Chinese Communist Party. FBI Director Christopher Wray said at a recent hearing that TikTok screams of national security concerns. It gives them the ability to control data collection on millions of users, which could be used for all sorts of intelligence operations. The recommendation algorithm, which could be used for all sorts of influence operations or to sow divisiveness, discord. It gives them the ability, should they so choose, to control the software on millions of devices. National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby repeatedly declined to comment on these threats Monday. I'm just trying to square why the president would use this platform that his administration is weighing a national ban on. I just can't speak for the campaign or their decisions. I apologize. Thanks. The administration still has concerns, uh, security concerns about TikTok, even though the campaign has now joined it. Again, I cannot speak, nor will I speak for the campaign. The president is sending a message to Americans about the Nash, about the safety of TikTok by doing this. I'd have to refer you to the campaign. Social media experts say Biden is trying to target young people. Pew Research says a third of 18 to 29-year-olds get their news on TikTok. TikTok's the best place to go if you're going to target the younger generation. Media expert Ryan Dozer says Facebook was the more traditional social media route and that traveling the country is likely still part of Biden's campaign strategy. But for young people, TikTok is the number one platform. Based on the recent polling, what we've seen is that President Biden is losing a lot of support with younger people, particularly over the handling of the war between Hamas and Israel. Andrew Selipak is a social media professor at the University of Florida. He says TikTok is banned in the federal government, in the military, across various state governments, and even on various college campuses. And now we have the president of the United States effectively endorsing a platform that most of the people that work for him 
are technically not allowed to be on. We reached out to the White House for comment, but didn't hear back before airtime. Virginia Gibson, NTD News. Two presidential candidates today in the spotlight after yesterday's Super Bowl, both trying to use the mega event to boost their campaigns. But did it work? NTD's Arian Pazdar has the story. President Biden today facing backlash over this video posted on X talking about enjoying snacks during the Super Bowl. As an ice cream lover, what makes me the most angry is that ice cream cartons have actually shrunk in size, but not in price. I've had enough of what they call shrinkflation. Republicans from the House Judiciary Committee commented, saying Joe Biden complains about shrinkflation, forgetting that he's the cause. Conservative think tank the Heritage Foundation says, don't let President Biden gaslight you. Shrinkflation is not the problem, Bidenomics is. The White House on Monday defended the video. He's called on large corporations to pass their savings on to hard-working uh, hard Americans. That's what we're doing. Now, Biden also made the unusual decision to skip a Super Bowl Sunday TV interview. That's despite the fact that he would have had the unique chance to connect with millions of football and Taylor Swift fans at the same time. On Monday, a reporter asked why Biden didn't do the interview. We've talked about this. We've believed that it is important, uh, obviously, tradition uh, uh, to, to watch the Super Bowl. And we think there are different ways to communicate with the American people. And a Super PAC backing Robert F. Kennedy Jr. ran a short ad during the Super Bowl halftime. Some people criticized the candidate for using clips, slogans and images from John F. Kennedy's 1960 presidential campaign. RFK's cousin Bobby Shriver denounced the use of a photo of his mother, who is John F. Kennedy's sister. He also criticized what he called RFK Jr.'s deadly healthcare views and said respect for science, vaccines and healthcare equity were in his mother's DNA. Kennedy later apologized, saying he's sorry the advertisement caused anyone in his family pain. He said the ad was created and aired by the American Value Super PAC without any involvement or approval from his campaign. Ariane Pastar, NTD News. Senators this evening are continuing a days-long process to approve nearly $100 billion in foreign aid. Several Republican senators have objected with lengthy floor speeches, now pointing to what they say is a buried attempt to impeach former President Trump if he takes back the White House. Entity's Melina Weiskup reports. Senators are continuing a days-long process to try to get $95 billion in foreign aid to Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan over the finish line. Over the weekend, several Republican senators took to the floor in opposition, speaking for hours sometimes, like Senator Mike Lee. Critics are concerned about the large amount of tax dollars that are being used for this, and if that money will be used appropriately, considering there are no audits in place and the lack of action at our own U.S. southern border. But now there's a new concern about the possibility of how it would impact a future Trump administration. Freshman Senator J.D. Vance of Ohio circulated a memo calling it an impeachment time bomb. He says that buried in the text is a piece that would allow grounds for impeaching a potential future President Trump if he were to try to halt funding to Ukraine. Vance drew on the example of the 2019 impeachment of former President Trump over Ukraine, including his decision to halt funding to the country. But regardless of this Republican opposition, it's likely to pass the Senate later this week. There were 17 Republicans who joined all Democrats in advancing the bill on Sunday. Now tonight, they will hold another procedural vote. But it's likely to stop in the Senate, considering Republican opposition in the House continues. 
Reporting from Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. Joining us now to react to former President Trump's remarks on NATO, we have Bart Marcois. He's a former U.S. diplomat and a former Deputy Assistant Secretary for International Affairs. Bart Marcois, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Thanks, Tiffany. Always a pleasure to be with you. To begin, world leaders are contemplating a return of Trump to the White House. Now, that's after Trump's remarks on the weekend, where he was saying that when he was president, he told the leaders of NATO that he would look the other way if Russia were to invade. Now, the head of NATO said his suggestion, quote, undermines all of our security. What do you make of Trump's remarks here? Well, this is a, I love this, um, this issue. It's a perfect illustration of what a friend of mine describes as they'll take what you say, they'll twist it into something you didn't say, and then they'll condemn you for something you didn't say. Trump told a story to a rally, and what he was doing was boasting of his ability to negotiate, and, and, and he was talking about NATO. When he came into NATO, most of our NATO allies were woefully under their committed levels of spending. Every NATO member has committed to spend at least 2% of their gross domestic product, their GDP, on defense spending. Now, the U.S. spends 4 4.5%. Um, uh, Finland, Lithuania, Latvia spend more than 3%. Poland spends almost 4%. Other than that, almost nobody meets their NATO commitment. France spends almost 2%, right around 2%. I would bet you a dollar that the, co the country he was talking about was Germany, because Germany, when Trump first came into office, was woefully under their 2% commitment. And what he was doing to them is saying, listen, we have this Article 5, but you guys have been free riding on American taxpayers for your defense, and it's time for you to start paying. And whatever country it was, I don't want to slander Germany if it wasn't them, whatever country it was, the leader said, well, what would you do if we didn't? Essentially daring Trump to ignore their failure to meet their commitment. And he answered with that. And so now people are taking that and blowing that up into something that where they're saying, oh, Trump said he's not going to support NATO. It's not what he said at all. He was making a point that he knows how to be tough. And by the way, all those countries increased their NATO spending significantly. It's the Germany is much higher than it was. It's still too low, but it's much higher than it was. France was lower. It's now up almost to two percent, and so forth. So it worked. Hmm. Now, on the note of funds, Trump is now railing against the Senate foreign uh, foreign aid bill, saying that the money should instead be loaned. Now, what would that change if this money were loaned out? Is it accountability, transparency? What would that change? Not much, to be honest with you. It's a it's a good suggestion. It at least creates an obligation that after the war is over, when Ukraine returns to being a very uh, wealthy, very prosperous country, that they would have a responsibility to pay us back. But, you know, there's, there's something, if I may, there's an idea that they could do about Ukraine. Trump has a point about, and the, the Republicans have a point about spending in Ukraine. There are other ways to spend money to win the war in Ukraine. We should be encouraging Ukraine to use their, their 
spectacular military intelligence group that's had all these accomplishments in special operations to go after Putin's energy supply, go after the export ports, the, the, um, the production centers, the, the internal transport centers. They've been doing that for the last year. They should be encouraged to do more of that. It's a lot cheaper than artillery shells, and it would make the guys on Ukraine's front line safer because it would deprive Putin of the money he needs to buy his weapons and his armaments and to pay more soldiers in his army. And that's the only way you're going to win it, is if you starve Putin. We should bankrupt Putin. We should bankrupt Putin, not ourselves, in this war. Hmm. Now, delving into this Senate foreign aid bill, Ohio Senator J.D. Vance is saying, quote, buried in the bill's text is an impeachment time bomb for the next Trump presidency if he tries to stop funding the war in Ukraine. This is something that Senator Rand Paul agrees with. Now, what would this mean if Trump does win his second term? You know, the funny thing about this issue is everybody is expecting that Trump will win in November. They're all looking at the situation and they're saying, oh my gosh, Trump is coming back. And they're panicking. And, and, and I think J.D. Vance is right. I had not been aware of that issue until he tweeted about it. I went and I read his tweet, I read his letter, I looked at the, um, the language in the bill, and there really is a poison pill in there. They're setting up Trump so that if he says, we are not going to spend this money in Ukraine again, that they can impeach him on the same grounds of the phony impeachment, uh, whatever year that was, 2020, 2019, 2020, when they impeached him before. Um, they expect him to win, and this is one of who knows how many hundreds or perhaps thousands of preparations that they're making so that they can undermine him again when he's president again. Quite fascinating indeed. Bart Marquois, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me on. Coming up, a California father pleads guilty to starting a forest fire in 2020. The massive blaze killed one firefighter and injured a dozen others. And is there evidence that gender transition services alleviate mental health problems? The American College of Pediatricians says no. Our guest says it's time to depoliticize the field. We hear his analysis after the break here on NTD News. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. Police identified the shooter at Lakewood Churches as Genesee Yvonne Moreno, a Hispanic female with a history of mental illness and a criminal background. Police said her rifle had a sticker saying Palestine and her seven-year-old son remains in critical condition. Former President Trump asked the Supreme Court to delay the federal elections case while he appeals over presidential immunity. He also attended a closed-door hearing in Florida in the classified documents case. Meanwhile, in a Georgia hearing, District Attorney Fannie Willis objected to testifying about her romantic relationship with the top prosecutor. The Israel Defense Forces rescued two hostages in the Gaza Strip. They also reported finding a Hamas terror tunnel beneath UNRWA's main headquarters connected to a UN school. 
Large swaths of the country are bracing for winter weather from Ohio to New England, breaking an unusual warm spell in the Midwest. New York City could see its biggest snowfall in more than two years. A father who sparked a fatal 2020 California wildfire has pleaded guilty. Authorities say the smoke bomb device he used during a gender reveal party was illegal. Prosecutors said on Friday a man pleaded guilty to involuntary manslaughter for a family gender reveal photo shoot that sparked the El Dorado fire, killing a firefighter and injuring 13 other people. The El Dorado fire erupted in September 2020 when Refugio Jimenez Jr. and Angelina Jimenez set off a smoke-generating pyrotechnic at El Dorado Ranch Park at the foot of the San Bernardino Mountains. Sparks turned into a blaze and strong winds pushed the fire through federal forest land. On Friday, the San Bernardino County District Attorney announced that Refugio Jimenez Jr. pleaded guilty to one count of involuntary manslaughter and two counts of recklessly causing a fire to an inhabited structure. He will be taken into custody on February 23rd for a year in jail and 200 hours of community service. Angelina Jimenez pleaded guilty to three misdemeanor counts of recklessly causing fire to property of another. She was sentenced to 400 hours of community service. The couple was also ordered to pay over $1.7 million in restitution. Three years after the fire, the U.S. Forest Service filed a lawsuit against the pyrotechnics device manufacturers and the couple. The lawsuit alleged that the smoke bombs used were illegal in California and known to be defective. The American College of Pediatricians recently issued a statement on mental health and gender transition services. Joining us now to discuss the document, we have Colin Wright. He is an evolutionary biologist and founding editor of Reality's Last Stand. Colin Wright, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Hey, thanks for having me again. Now, the American College of Pediatricians has issued its position after reviewing more than 60 studies on mental health in adolescents with gender dysphoria. Now, it concluded, quote, there is no long-term evidence that mental health concerns are decreased or alleviated after gender-affirming therapy. Now, how significant is this finding? You know, it's a very significant statement um, because the statement by the American College of Pediatricians you know, this came out as the rest of the world has been coming to sanity on this issue and moving away from doing gender-affirming care procedures as they have performed more systematic reviews of the evidence uh, that all show that there's no good benefits of long-term uh, benefits for these these types of interventions. Um, so really, this statement by the ACP sort of adds to the mounting pressure on the AAP, the America's largest professional group of pediatricians, to conduct their own Transparent, uh, transparent systematic review of the evidence, which they're uh, currently in, in, in the process of performing. Now, supporters of this type of gender transitioning treatments have argued that it saves lives by reducing suicide in youth. Now, the report found the opposite. It said that suicide and suicide attempts actually was really high among those who have received the treatments. What do you make of the lack of evidence in the medical community that then leads to these types of treatments? So a lot of the studies just are poorly designed. They're almost designed to fail and not actually test for uh, the, the factor of interest, which is our kids who are claiming to have gender dysphoria, are they more likely uh, to be committing suicide or have suicidal ideation? 
uh, and the comparison should be two other similarly uh, similar youth with similar mental health conditions. They usually tend to just compare these kids who claim to be trans with uh, just the normal kids who don't have any other mental health conditions. Um, and then all of their mental health conditions are seen as a result of their gender dysphoria instead of the other way around. So when you actually control for things like pre-existing mental health conditions, the differences we have in suicide rates uh, is completely eliminated. And given this lack of evidence of the benefits, how does that tie or how does that actually go against the scientific community and the oath that physicians take up? Well, whenever we're performing such invasive medical treatments, you're supposed to have a really good reason to go ahead and do this. You know, we'll give people medications or treatments that are known to cause some type of harm, say like chemotherapy, but that's because the the benefits are highly outweighed. You know, you're not getting chemotherapy unless you have uh, terminal cancer that you're almost certainly going to die from. In the case of gender affirming care, though, we're giving them these irreversible body changing, sterilizing treatments to people who have completely healthy bodies. There is no actual ailment of the body, uh, and that's why the ACP recommends just to to start first with uh, intensive psychotherapy to find out the underlying causes for these feelings of gender dysphoria they have, rather than going immediately to just uh, you know changing, augmenting, and sterilizing perfectly healthy people. And given all of this, how can cultural sentiment policy and even medical practices catch up with the evidence or the lack of evidence? That's a good question because the evidence or say lack of evidence is pretty stark. I mean, it's it's clear that we shouldn't be making recommendations based on this lack of evidence. Uh, but we have this sort of unique situation in the U.S. and Canada uh, where the issues become incredibly politicized. And so a lot of people, pediatricians who are in these organizations, they're afraid to speak out because they're afraid they'll lose their license. They'll be called out on social media. They'll, uh, you know, won't be able to practice in their field. Won't have any collaborations. That type of thing. Uh, so we really just need to try to depoliticize it as much as possible. Call for systematic reviews of the evidence in the United States by the AAP and other medical organizations, so we can actually have policies that are informed by evidence uh, and not just a bunch of sort of political ideologues who have an agenda. Colin Wright, thank you so much for your time. Hey, I appreciate it. Thank you. Coming up, a pro-life activist who free-climbed the Las Vegas sphere faces damage charges of $100,000. The climber spoke with NTD and denies the charges against him. Welcome back. I'm Tiffany Meyer. A man who was arrested for free climbing the sphere in Las Vegas last week appeared in court today. He said he did it to raise money for a homeless pregnant woman. He's now accused of causing $100,000 worth of damage. But the climber told NTD's Jason Blair that the accusations are false. Mason Deschamps, who also goes by pro-life Spider-Man, free climbed the sphere on the Las Vegas Strip last Wednesday. We are doing this today to raise money for a mother named Isabel. She is homeless and pregnant and needs help, guys. When he got to the top, he was taken into police custody. The Las Vegas police posted on X, quote, the individual has been taken into custody without further incident. Some of his friends on the ground near the sphere were arrested as well. Three of them appeared in court on Thursday. A judge ruled they could be released but needed to stay out of the strip corridor and not be in contact with Deschamps while the case is pending. 
Deschamps, however, faces multiple charges, including destroying property greater than $5,000 and conspiracy to destroy private property. The police reported that Sphere officials said they estimate there was about $100,000 in damage done during the climb. That I'm very upset with the way the situation was handled and that no crimes were committed. Deschamps appeared in court on Monday and is being represented by former Nevada governor candidate Joy Gilbert. Despite the legal battle, Deschamps is still optimistic about reaching the goal he set out to do with the feat. Sphere climb was very successful for one reason, and that's because we were able to save a baby and help out Isabel, who is homeless. She will now be able to give life to her child and put a roof over her head. Deschamps has climbed numerous other buildings in the U.S. for pro-life causes, such as the New York Times building in New York City and the Salesforce Tower in San Francisco. Jason Blair, Entity News. Shinian Performing Arts took to the stage in Tucson, Arizona over the weekend. Theatergoers were enthralled by the artist's ability to showcase 5,000 years of traditional Chinese culture through dance and music. Shen Yun delivered three shows at the Linda Ronstadt Music Hall in Tucson, Arizona on February 10th and 11th. The New York-based company rekindles 5,000 years of traditional Chinese culture through classical Chinese dance and music. Audience members were captivated by the performances. I loved it. It was wonderful. What a cultural experience, and it just applies to all of us what we should be doing in our lives. Just the kindness, compassion that all of us should have for each other. Oh my God, it was so beautiful. And especially the ethnic pieces, um, the cultural ethnic pieces. I absolutely loved the, the sleeve dance and the, the yellow blossom dances. And then the Mongolian dance for the men was gorgeous too. I think those were definitely my favorites, but every piece was just magical. Shen Yun creates all new original musical compositions each year. Each performance is accompanied by a live orchestra that combines both Western and Eastern instruments. I love that blend of tradition and then uh, multicultural components, both Western and the Eastern instruments. So that was my favorite part, the music. Just the, the beauty of combining movement and music, it felt, very, it felt very healing to me, so I found it quite interesting when the speakers mentioned it. Paul said specifically later that music is a traditionally this medicine because I really believe that it is. <laughs> the essence of ancient Chinese culture and civilization is rooted in spirituality. Shenying brings forward these beliefs through their performances. I personally um, can relate to that. I think that that is something that we need more of, and uh, and I am very appreciative to see that it's being given on a larger audience. I'm just very grateful that they take the time and the energy to embrace their beliefs and let it shine throughout the world. It's great. Shen Ying will perform next at the Orpheum Theater in Phoenix from February 13th to 18th. NTD News, Tucson, Arizona. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.